Well, good morning, Hellas Church. My name is Andrew, and I serve as a pastor here. Let me invite you to take your Bibles, turn them open to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you do not own a Bible, know that we have some on the table in the foyer. We'd love for you to grab one of those on your way out. Let it be our gift to you. If you're not familiar with the Bible, know that every Bible comes with a table of contents. The Bible's a big book, and there's a lot of stuff in it. So let's utilize the table of contents and uh, find our way through this book as we seek to study it week, week in and week out. Today, we're stepping into 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Now, before we planted the Hallows Church about five years ago, I, I had to think a lot about what is the church. I had to ask myself questions and ask other people questions. Okay, what is the church? Like, what do we do as the church? What's the point of the church being in the world? And, and those questions led me to do a search on Amazon. I went to Amazon, did a book search. I typed in church. And the moment I hit enter, 400,000 returns came my way. That's a lot of books. So there's a lot of thoughts on church, and I began just combing through the titles of these books, and I'm going to take a moment to judge some of those books by their cover and, and just let you know that, that there seems to be stuff for any type of person out there. There's a type of church for them and different points of emphases. One, one book I came across was titled Healthy Church. Now, I imagine that's the type of church that accommodates those who like to ride bikes. Maybe they have membership of CrossFit. Uh, they, they exercise. They're very active and and then I found one not too, not too far removed from healthy church called Organic Church. And I've imagined that too. It's just full of healthy people, only they may not be as active, but they shop at PCC or they shop at Whole Foods. They eat organic, they have a garden, they do those types of things. But then also there's a church for those who may kind of have a uh, kind of thrift store junkies, uh, something called Vintage Church, uh, just kind of kicking it old school, going back. For those of us who may be more type A in our wiring, type A in our personalities, there's something called the purpose-driven church or the deliberate church. And so we like structure, we like plans, we like A, B, C. We like to fill in the blanks on our teaching guides, that type of thing. For those, perhaps, who grew up around church, maybe were a part of church as a kid and they found themselves in a youth group, which is a group of students who hang out in churches. And these youth groups do a lot of things and during the summers. They find themselves going to camps and those types of events and activities and uh, there's apparently something called sticky church, and that's what I imagine the type of church is for that, because you go to these camps and everybody winds up sticky for one reason or another. Sticky church. And then there's a church that maybe is for the overly sentimental, something called traditional church. Or maybe there's a church for those who are trendy people called the attractional church. For the intellectuals or the erudite, there's something called deep church. And if that kind of intimidates you and you're wondering, well, you kind of move into the deep church and you start feeling claustrophobic, don't worry. There's something called the emerging church where you can come up, get some air, find something else. There seems to be, uh, and then, then to kind of pull it all in, there was one all-encompassing church, a uh, book called Total Church. Uh, imagine being something like a Fred Meyer just has a little bit of everything. You can go there for bananas or bolts, whatever you want. You just go to, you just go to Fred Meyer. Now, there are many proposals uh, many thoughts on the forms and styles that churches should take, the, the types of people churches should be. There's a plethora of strategies available to anyone who is interested. In fact, the amount of it can be overwhelming. Some of those perspectives and strategies are wise and fruitful, some not so much. 
But when it comes to who we are as a church, who, the, the culture being created within the Hallows Church, there's one word that we use often that you might not be familiar with. It might not be a word that you've come across uh, readily or frequently in your discipleship or in your just exploration of Christianity and church life and all of that. And it's the word missional. Now, that word missional doesn't say everything there is to say about who we are as a church, but it does say some important things about how we envision ourselves and the role that we are to play in the world that is. You see, the word missional was a word coined back in the 1980s, I think, with this guy who wrote a book on how God is a sending God, and he used this term missional to to describe what it means for disciples, followers of Jesus, to live sent lives, to live purposeful lives. And as we think about what it means to be a missional church, we're talking about at least part of who we are as a community of faith uh, whose disciples live on purpose. We live sent lives. When we go about our ordinary activities of daily life, we do so with a conscious awareness of the distinct role we have to play right now. And this is true for every single disciple, every person who trusts in the gospel and becomes a follower of Jesus. You are a sent person. You are to engage the world the way Jesus engaged the world. This is why at the end of the gospel in John chapter 20, verse 21, Jesus would say of his disciples, as the Father has sent me, so I am now sending you. That's missional. The Father sent the Son, now the Son sends you and I into the world. Those who would who are disciples or followers of Jesus, those who carry the label Christian, in a life-changing sense, we are sent ones. And you think about how the Father sent the Son into the world, and you consider verses like John chapter 3, 6, John chapter 3, verse 16, for the Father so loved the world, he sent the Son. He loved the world, so he sent the Son. And then you come to the end of John's gospel, and Jesus says, as the Father sent me, so I am sending you. Jesus loves the world, so he's sending us. He's sending us to live missional lives on purpose, for purpose, representing the presence of God in the world, representing the passion of God in the world, representing the love that God has for the world. He's manifesting it through your presence at work, through your presence in your social strata, in your presence everywhere you go in every moment of every day. This is what we're talking about when it comes to being missional. And this same word is used, or this same concept is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where you have this missional metaphor. Jesus, or sorry, Paul, writing to the church, he would refer to himself and then apply this to the church that he's writing to. He, he would say, I believe it's down in verse 25, he would say, I'm sorry, not 25, that goes way too far. He says it's down in verse 20, that we are what? We are ambassadors for Christ. What does it mean to be an ambassador? An ambassador is a sent one. An ambassador is a representative. And Paul is saying this is who we are in the church. So when it comes to this idea of missional, of living sin, ambassadors, we have a purpose to carry out in the world. We're going to th- see a few things about uh, our missional strategy or our missional culture as a church. And all three of these come out of this passage. There's a lot here. We won't pack, unpack everything present there, but, but there's a lot in this story or in this passage dealing with our missional strategy. And the first gets after our motivation. What drives us? What motivates us to live on mission or to live a sent life? And our missional motivation is found right there in verse 14 where 
Paul writes, for the love of Christ controls us. So our motivation right there, the love of Christ. One of the first times I ever taught the Bible in a church setting, I was about 15, 16 years ago. I walked into this room and it was an informal setting, but I was asked to come and to teach on what does it mean to share the gospel? And I thought, okay, if I'm going to go and teach on sharing the gospel, telling people about Jesus, I was asking myself, well, why would we do so in the first place? And so I walked into this room and it was full of people that I deeply respected. It was full of people who had been teaching the Bible a lot longer than I had been. And I stood up in front of this room and I said, well, we go and we tell people about Jesus because Jesus told us to. And I said, in, in saying that, I was saying that our motivation for telling people about Jesus is obedience. And I said that, and I'm getting into the stride, and I see a guy over on the right kind of cringe a little bit. And it's an informal setting. I see him kind of cringe, so I stop. I say, is there something wrong, something you want to add to, to what's being said right now? And, and he spoke up, and he says, look, obedience is not the reason we talk about Jesus. We do not tell people about Jesus simply because we want to be obedient. That's not our motivation. He says, the reason we do this is for love. And the moment he said that, he corrected me in this room with all kinds of people. I'm, I'm thinking, he's right. There was a ring of truth to what he was saying. And my mind ran to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For the love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ compels us. We live missionally, not, because we, not primarily because we want to be obedient. We live missionally because the love of Christ it's not because Jesus tells us to do these things. It's because Jesus loved us to do these things. Love then becomes our primary motivation. And that becomes incredibly important for you and I. Because when you think about what drives people, it's not enough for me to stand before you and say, okay, go tell people about Jesus and issue that command. Go make disciples and issue that command. And just telling, tell you what to do as a Christian or what we are supposed to do as a church Bare-boned imperatives, cold commands have no blood in them. They have no life in them. Commands cannot change a person's heart. Commands cannot sustain a person for the long haul. And so what is needed isn't for me to stand up and say, let's tell people about Jesus because Jesus told us to. What's needed is for us to have our heart warmed by the fact that Jesus loved us so that the love of Christ would then flow out of us in an organically spiritual kind of way. You might think of it this way. Let's imagine I have an iron rod and I'm holding it in front of you and this iron rod, uh, you tell me, okay, now, Andrew, I want you to bend that rod. I'm commanding you, change its shape. Now, I could stand up and I could exert my force. I could put my energy, I could put my effort into it. I could flex my huge muscles and try to bend this rod and it's not gonna be very effective. I can give it everything that I have and I might make it move, but it's going to jolt back into its original position because I'm not strong enough to make that happen. So in order to shame, change the shape of that iron rod, it's not enough for me just to do it because you tell me to. What is needed is some heat. What is needed is for me to go get some heat and apply that heat to that iron rod. And when you apply heat to it, that's when it becomes malleable. That's when it becomes moldable. That's when it can shape. Well, when it comes to you and I living on mission, it's not enough for us simply to be told to do so. It's for you and I to recognize that God has applied the heat of his love 
to our hearts and his love has molded and shaped us into a new kind of person who is now living with a new motivation. And that motivation isn't law. That motivation is love. It is the love of Christ that controls us. And Paul would go on to explain, okay, what does the love of Christ look like? It looks like this. He would go on in verse 14, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. What does Jesus' love look like? It looks like death and resurrection. It looks like him dying for us and coming back to life. And when that the warmth of that reality is applied to our hearts, things begin to change. And one of the things that happens is that his love dislodges us. If you notice the move in verse 15, his move, his love pushes us out from the center point of life and the focal point of existence. His love pushes us to the fringes so that we're no longer living a self-centered life. We're living a Christ-centered life. We have been dislodged by the love of Christ. This is what he's saying. So that now, those of you who are going to benefit from his death and resurrection, those of you who are being transformed and molded by that reality, you are no longer the center of your universe. You are no longer living for yourself. You're now living for Christ. His love dislodges you. But not only does his love dislodge you, his love, get this, dominates you. And I know that word dominate may sound extreme. It may sound weird. But when you look at that word control in verse 14, it can, it's translated different things in different Bibles because translators have a hard time just putting the concept of that word into one word in their translations. And so they, some translations say controlled, others say constrain, others say compel. But it's getting after this idea that the love of Christ is an energizing power. It is a it is an energizing force. It is a compelling energy in our lives. It's heat. It's warmth. It's effective. There's a power to it. He's saying, look, the love of Christ now dominates your life in the sense that it is now directing your life. It is now steering your life. And the direction his love is leading us is away from a self-centered existence and towards a Christ-centered existence so that we are now living for him who was crucified and risen. His love is bringing that about. His love is dominating our lives, or better word, maybe directing our lives, moving us in that direction. His love is hemming us in. His love is, is providing the parameters in which we live, and that life is now in a Christ-centered direction. It is a life motivated by love. Now, to get a picture of this, he goes on in verse 21. If you drop down to verse 21, he gives us another kind of glimpse into what it means for Christ to have been crucified and risen. And, and what acts, one of the most mind-blowing concepts as it relates to the gospel, verse 21, Paul says, For our sake, God, he, that's the he there, God made him, that's Jesus, God made Jesus to what? To be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's a strange verse, but it is one of the most mind-blowing realities as it relates to the cross. God made Jesus to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, God took the, our sin and put it upon Jesus when he died on the cross. And then he took Jesus' perfection, his righteousness, his, his integrity, his holiness, and he put it on us. It was a, it's what's called the great exchange, or I like to call it the killer crossover where Jesus just flips, or God flips the script on the human condition when Jesus died on 
the cross. And this picture, this whole exchange, this whole crossover dynamic has been illustrated and hinted at often in the Bible. There's one occasion in the Old Testament where we're given a picture in a very subtle way of this type of thing going down. It's found in Genesis chapter 48, and there's a guy by the name of Jacob. Jacob had a son named Joseph. Joseph then had two sons, so Jacob was a grandfather. And as the grandfather, he was the patriarch. He was the one who had received God's blessing, and he was the one who was now to bestow that blessing upon another, upon his children. But in that case, it would be his grandchildren because he was still alive and those kids had come of age. Now, religiously and culturally, as the patriarch who was going to bestow God's favor or divine blessing upon his progeny, he would, he would give the blessing to the oldest kid in the family. So the oldest grandchild would be blessed. It was his right. Now, in this scene in Genesis chapter 48, though, Jacob's on his deathbed. Uh, his grandsons come to him. He has the oldest one on one side, the youngest one on the other side. And, and the way it worked is that the, the patriarch would place his right hand upon the head of the, the one who would inherit the blessing and bestow the blessing that way. And it was all his right hand on the head of the oldest kid. But the story's really interesting and it's odd because it says that in that moment, Jacob crossed his hands. And when he crossed his hands, he ended up putting his right hand on the youngest son and his left hand on the oldest son. And he bestowed blessing that way. And when Joseph saw that happen, he said, wait, that's not the way it's supposed to be. The blessing is supposed to go to the oldest kid. And you put your hand on the youngest kid. You've crossed your hands and he's confused and he's protesting. And then Joseph looks at him and he says this, this is how God would have it. And the question is, why would God have it like that in that moment? And I believe it's because in that moment, God was giving a picture of how God's blessing would come to us through Jesus. In other words, giving us a picture of the killer crossover, giving us a picture of the great exchange, giving us a picture of how on the cross, Jesus crossed his hands. Or on the cross, God crossed his hands. In other words, he gave you and I the blessing that Jesus rightly, rightly owned and had, and he bestowed upon Jesus that which wasn't blessing, that which was considered a cursing. Our sin went to Jesus, his blessing, his righteousness came to us. It's this killer crossover. It's this surprising manifestation of God's redeeming love, God loving people who do not rightfully deserve it. God loving people who do not necessarily warrant it. He's saying, look, on the cross, God crossed his hands, blessing us and cursing Jesus. It's a killer crossover. But don't miss what Paul's getting after. He's saying, look, this is the example for how you are to be compelled by the love of Christ. He's saying later on in 2 Corinthians, he would get into chapter 8. He would say, what compels a Christian to live a generous life? What would compel a Christian who's, who would take the blessings uh, that God gives them and give them to someone else? What would compel a Christian to cross his or her hand, so to speak, loving the unlovable, blessing those who do not deserve it or, or uh, warrant it. What would compel someone to do that? Well, Paul's always coming back to this reality, the great exchange, what Jesus did for us on the cross. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, for example, he's encouraging the church to be dominated by the love of Christ, and he's specifically with how they show their generosity. Verse 9, this is what he points to. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. It's an exchange. It's a crossover. Christ was rich. He was made poor. We were poor. We're made rich in Christ. And he's saying this is how the love of Christ motivates you to do similar things so that all of a sudden you start thinking about your life and the blessings God has given you, your job, your health, your money, your possessions, your friendships, your influence, all the blessings that God has given to you. And you start thinking, okay, how are these blessings supposed to flow through me to others? How can I live the kind of life where I'm not clinging to these blessings, but I'm channeling these blessings to other people? This is how the love of God, the love of Christ dominates us. It directs us to cross our hands, so to speak, loving people, serving people, being other-oriented. We're no longer living for ourselves, but for him who for our sake was crucified and risen. So you have this motivation of the love of Christ compelling us to cross our hands and to bless other people. But... We also find here is our missional position. Verse 16, this is what Paul's getting after back at chapter 5. He says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Our missional position. And it's found right there in that phrase. If anyone is where? If anyone is in Christ. That's one of my favorite phrases in all of the New Testament. You want to know what it means to be a Christian. You want to know what it means to be saved. You want to know what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It means to be a person who is located in Christ. And of all the descriptions of a Christian in the New Testament, this one is by far the most common. Did you know the word Christian only shows up three times in the New Testament? And usually it's by people on the outside looking in saying, well, those are Christians over there. And a lot of times they're using that word in a derogatory fashion. The most common description of the Christian in the New Testament is in Christ. It shows up 164 times in Paul's writings alone. This is who you are. This is your position. You are in Christ. But when you hear that, don't think you are in Christ the way tools are in a toolbox where there's no real connection between a hammer and its environment. That's not what we're talking about. Don't think that you're in Christ the way clothes are in a closet, where there's no real connection between the shirt and the walls. There's no real connection. When when the Bible says that we're in Christ, it's referring to a spiritually organic connection, a union with Christ. We are in Christ in an organic sense, the way your arm is in you. The way a limb of a tree is in a tree. It's that type of connection where the limb is in the tree and the life of the tree is flowing to the limb. This is what Jesus would say in John chapter 15. He would say, I am the vine and you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You must find yourself in me and me in you. Let my life flow through you to others. Recognize you are located in Christ. This is our position. And all of a sudden, he becomes the source of our lives, and his presence in our lives should be discernible. His presence in our lives should be noticed, not necessarily because we're calling attention to it all the time, but because of the life that is flowing organically and supernaturally through us. It's not unlike that poem written about a person who came in contact with a Christian, and he was taken aback by the felt sense of Christ's presence in that person. And this is what The poet would write, 
You know, it wasn't not merely in the words that you say, not only in your deeds confessed, but in the most unconscious way is Christ expressed. Is it a beatific smile, a holy light upon your brow? No, I felt his presence when you laughed just now. To me, t'was not the truth you taught, to you so clear, to, to me still kind of dim, but when you came, you brought a sense of him. And from your eyes, he beckons me. And from your heart, his love is shed till I lose sight of you and see the Christ instead. When you find yourself in Christ and Christ is in you and yourself begins to decrease and he begins to increase, the life that is flowing out of you should give people a real felt sense of the presence of Christ in the world. How is Jesus present in the world today? Through you. How is he present in the world today? Through me. We are in Christ. He is in us. And his life is flowing through us. And, and usually the best parts of what's called Christianity, that which people actually might like about Christianity, when people speak positively about the Christian faith in the world, usually the best parts about Christianity, it's, it's the result of the presence of Jesus being at work through the people of Jesus. It is the presence of Christ manifesting himself through the people of Christ and how we love others, how we serve others, how we listen to others, how we look at others. This is what Paul's driving after where he refers to this missional position of being in Christ. And he's saying, in Christ, recognize that you now have a new identity. This is what he would say. If anyone is in Christ, he is what? He is a new creation. He is a new person. He is a new self, one that is now been dislodged and now dominated by the love of Christ. He's saying this new identity, your relationship with Christ is what will define you. It's what's going to drive you. And some of you have walked in this morning with all kinds of definitions that people have lay, has layered onto your life. They, they've defined you in one way or another and you need to see yourself not so much in how they're seeing you, but need to, you need to see yourself how God sees you in Christ. Because when you were in Christ, you were no longer defined by your successes or your failures, your righteousness or your unrighteousness. You were no longer defined by your sin, your guilt, your fear. You were no longer defined by your good works and your morality. You were defined by the righteousness of Christ. It is his righteousness that has been given to you. You in him, he in you. That changes everything. That's the basis of your identity. But not only are we given a new identity, notice what else he's saying here. He's saying we also give it, get a new perspective. He says from now on, because of all that Christ has done in me and through me, this new creation that I'm growing into, that I am and are still becoming, he says we regard no one according to the flesh. We've been given a new perspective. Now, I needed, I needed glasses for a long time before I actually got glasses. And I didn't know that I needed glasses, really, until I got glasses. The straw that kind of broke the camel's back, well, that was the moment I confused my friend Beth with my friend Brad from a distance, and she didn't like that very much. So I said, okay, I must not be seeing things rightly. And so I had to go get my eyes checked, and I was diagnosed. I had somebody outside of me tell me what's wrong with me. Look, you can't see. And as they diagnosed me, they then gave, tested my eyes and gave me a prescription those prescriptions led to me getting glasses. And the moment I put my glasses on that first time, it was like I was seeing the world for the first time. 
I mean, I didn't know that leaves actually had shapes. I just thought they were just big brown blobs, splotches of stuff in trees. But they actually have shapes and they have colors. And when I put on my glasses, I could see the contours and details that I were that I was oblivious to for a while after my eyes started going bad, I began to see faces. I could recognize people. I could see other individuals uniquely and distinctly. I could, I could relate to people in ways that, that would dignify them because I, weren't, I wasn't confusing them with others. I, I was relating to people. Well, this is essentially what Paul is getting after when he says, you were in Christ. And because of this reality, we now regard no one according to the flesh. We are now, we've now been given a new perspective. We're seeing all things differently. And you think about the way in which you see people. You think about the way the world we live in tends to see people with all these classifications, with all these descriptions, with all these labels. I mean, the labels for people are just getting longer and longer and long. I can't keep up with how individuals want to identify themselves through, with all these labels. But notice how the gospel simplifies the equation. The gospel simplifies everything, saying, look, we're no longer regarding people according to the flesh. We're not seeing people according to all these labels and categories. We are looking at people, and we are seeing them in one of two places, either in Christ or outside of Christ. This is how Paul saw the world. They are in Christ or outside of Christ. And the love of Christ is compelling us to engage both types of people with a gospel focus, with a gospel love, with a compassionate outlook. It is this type of focus that allows you and I to love people as people. We're not placing a person's value on, based on some external criteria, whether it be their race or their gender or their socioeconomic status. We're not seeing people and evaluating them according to those means. We're just seeing human beings created in the image of God. We're seeing people whose lie, whose sin has separated them from God. We're seeing people who are either in Christ because they've been reconciled through Christ or they're outside of Christ and they need the hope of this story of Jesus' death and resurrection. They need to hear of his love for them in this way. The gospel categories of in Christ and outside of Christ one picture of this I read about recently comes from 1912 when the Titanic sunk. I don't know if you saw the movie or whatever, but the movie's not that accurate. Rose wasn't really on the boat. But there are other stories and other things that, that come out this of, of the heroism that comes out where people really did try to take care of people. It wasn't as cold as, as the movie makes it out to see. All the rich people are evil. Just throughout the, That's not really how it went down. Uh, the movie was exaggerated. But... Anyways, what it did get right was that the movie showed how that boat was comprised of all types of people, men and women, rich and poor, young and old, all types of people, different races showed up on that boat to take this trip. But when the boat began to sink and word reached land that the Titanic sank, people began to panic and they wanted to know, okay, well, who, who made it out? Who am I going to, where's, where's so-and-so? And so they put up a chalkboard in New York City and on this chalkboard they had two columns one column, they used the word literally saved. The other word they used in the other column was lost. And as they began to discover more information, that's where all these names fell. Either they were saved or they were lost. All types of people were on the boat, but at the end, there was only two categories. There were those who were rescued and those who perished. And Paul would say, this is how we are regarding the world now, we're seeing people through the lens of either in Christ or outside of Christ. We want, as people who are in Christ, we want people to come and join us there. 
We want people to join us in Christ. That's what's driving this whole idea of being a missional people. And, and I know when we talk about being in Christ and outside of Christ, immediately our minds start thinking of the names and the faces, people in our lives who may right now be outside of Christ. They do not know the gospel or his salvation. And, and you hear that and you think about that and your, your heart runs to them. You begin to be burdened over that. You begin to be broken over that. And I, I'm under the impression that followers of Jesus should be emotional people. If the gravity of the gospel really does take its place in our lives, when we begin to feel the weight of what it means to be in Christ and outside of Christ, especially for those who are outside of Christ, that should do something to us. It, it should wreck us. The gospel gives us a new perspective, but that perspective is a wrecking perspective. It affects how we see people and our heart goes out for them. And this is what drives us in love towards them with this ministry of reconciliation we'll talk about in a moment. But it's not unlike what Paul would say in Romans chapter 9. Paul's talk, Paul talks a lot about himself being in Christ and Christians being in Christ. He's also the one that talks about those outside of Christ. Romans chapter 9, his heart is so moved by the people he loved, that he actually said, you know, I wish I could go outside and take their place if only they could come in. I would, I would willingly give my life for them to come in. That's exchange, isn't it? That's the love of Christ showing up in Paul's life where he would say something like, man, I, I wish I could go out so that they could come in. If, if, I, if that could happen, let it be. This is the, the position that we're in and this is the perspective that we have and this is what thrusts us then thirdly into our missional purpose. Our missional purpose is described in that phrase in verse 18, the ministry of reconciliation. That word reconciliation appears five times in the next three verses, and it is one of the most moving, heartwarming realities in the universe. It's a word that speaks about how at one time there was hostility, at one time there was animosity, but now there's harmony and friendship. In order for reconciliation to happen, that means there was a problem in a person's relationship. Something wasn't firing, something wasn't healthy, and so reconciliation was needed. And so when you think about reconciliation, you're thinking about how at one point my heart was hostile to my creator. At one time, I, did, I wasn't really interested in Jesus and his gospel, but something happened. Reconciliation occurred. This is why Paul would say that God has reconciled us to himself through Christ. Although we were at one time enemies of God, we are now his friends. We are more so, we are even his family. Our hostility towards him has been replaced with harmony. One of the best pictures of this comes from a guy named Pedro Reyes, who's a, uh, an artist coming out of Mexico. He lives in Mexico City, and there's a city in Mexico called Juarez, and Juarez was one of the most violent cities on the planet for a long time. One of those cities, about 10 people would wind up dead every day, thousands of people being murdered every year due to the drug wars and those types of things, guns everywhere. Fortunately, over the past 10 years or so, things have improved. The city's changed a good bit, and it's becoming a more hospitable environment. But for a long time, it was very violent, a lot of carnage. Well, this artist decided to start a project called Disarm, and he would go into Juarez, and he would collect the guns that were confiscated by the military or discarded by the police. And he would take these guns, and he would melt them down, and turn them into musical instruments. These weapons of warfare, he would literally transform into instruments of music. And you think about reconciliation, you think about God reconciling us through Christ to himself, that's essentially what he's done. He's replaced our hostility with his harmony. He's replaced our restlessness with his peace. He's He's turned us into instruments 
of worship. This is what reconciliation is. That's what it means. It is God befriending us in this way. And then, but notice, notice the thrust though. He says in verse 18, all of this, every bit of it comes from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And then verse 18, he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Then he would go on and say, that is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins against them and entrusting to us the what? The message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. On one hand, yes, God reconciled us to himself through Christ. Now, God appeals to the world through who? Through you and me. God is now making that same appeal to the world through us. He's entrusted us with this ministry of reconciliation. This is why we are ambassadors. We are sent ones. We are representatives. We are engaging in a missional life, a sent life, a purposeful life that recognizes that the goal of our church isn't to get people necessarily to come here. The goal of the church is to get us going to them. As the Father sent the Son into the world, so Jesus is sending us. He's sending you and me into the world as his representatives. And what are we doing when we get there? We're befriending people. We're engaging in this ministry of reconciliation where strangers are becoming friends, where we're meeting people and introducing ourselves and building relationship with others. But we're not just befriending them. We're delivering, we're executing a ministry. What is that ministry? Well, our ministry is our message. Our ministry is our message. We're befriending people and we're telling them about Jesus. We're befriending people and we're introducing them to the gospel story. We're befriending people and we're hoping, by God's grace, they would be swept up in that story and find themselves in Christ. Our ministry is our message. Now, there's a lot of things our church could be about. There's a lot of good things our church can and will do in and for West Seattle and beyond. There's a lot of good things we will do. But the one thing we must do, the best thing we can do for West Seattle and beyond is to share this message. Our ministry is our message. If we ever lose our message, we lose our relevance. What makes us relevant isn't our style, isn't our fashion, it isn't our external qualities. What makes us relevant in and for this city is this message of reconciliation. It's the story of the gospel. That's the one thing no other group in the city can bring. That's the one reality no other group in this city can execute. There are a lot of food banks. There are a lot of mercy ministries, so to speak, that aren't driven by the gospel. They're doing lots of good, and we will join them and partner with them in doing similar things. But the one distinct reality we are gripped by is the message of the gospel. Our ministry is our message, and our message is the gospel. Therefore, if we're going to live missionally, the gospel, Jesus' name must flow out of our mouth and into the ears of other people. Our ministry is our message. Our message is our gospel. We are ambassadors of Christ representing Jesus and representing him. Yes, we want to give people a felt sense of his presence by how well we engage and befriend, but we also want to give them a a heard sense of his presence. We want to speak his name. We want to introduce people to Jesus. We want people to find themselves in Christ. And there's a myriad of ways that we can do that. You talk to someone who's wrestling with sin, I'm wrestling with guilt, you can say, look, forgiveness is available. 
in Christ. You find somebody who's wrestling with shame and you encourage them, look, honor is available. It's available in Christ. You see someone who's fraught with fears and anxieties. You can tell them, look, courage is available in Christ. Peace is available in Christ. You come across someone who's suffering and being beaten up by life in a fallen world. You can encourage them. There is comfort in Christ. Every remedy for every problem to be faced in this world is found in Christ. He is our position. He is our location. He is our Savior. He is the one that we're calling people into because relief and redemption And remedy from the fallen human condition is only found in Christ. You and I have that message. Nobody else has that message. Our ministry is our message and our message is the gospel. And as I think about my life, I think about my missional engagement, how I'm personally trying to live missionally and befriend people who are outside of Christ and to introduce them to Jesus. I shared this with the elders a couple weeks ago and I kind of confessed it because I'm in a relationship with some people who only know me as a pastor. Who cares if they know me as a pastor? What they need to know is if I'm a follower of Jesus. Some know that I lead a church. And who cares if they know if I lead a church? What they need to know is that they're loved by Jesus. So in my relationships, as I've been befriending those who are outside of Christ and and trying to live missionally, I find myself never really voicing the reality of the gospel. I find myself talking about other things. I invite them to church. I don't invite them to Jesus. I invite them to missional community. I never invite them to Jesus. And I kind of hide, I kind of shade the ministry of reconciliation by pointing to other things that we would consider good. I kind of disguise it with other types of invitations and other types of things. And that's that's not what we're called to. Our message to the world is not join our church. Our message to the world is step into Christ. Our message to the world is not come to missional community. Our message to the world is step into Christ. Our message isn't, I love you. Our message is Jesus loves you. And so one of my fears that I confess to the elders is that I can be in relationship with this person in particular that I had in mind. He's outside of Christ. He doesn't know the gospel. And I can be in relationship with him for two years as I have been. And, and one day he comes to me and he says, hey, I got something to tell you. I met somebody the other day and he told me about this guy named Jesus. And Jesus lived and he died and my life is changing. I'm believing in the God. And, he, and so he hears, Jesus, hears about Jesus from someone else and then he comes and tries to share the gospel with me because there's really no distinct flavor to our relationship in the sense that I'm never talking about who Jesus is and what Jesus is doing in my life and what Jesus wants to do in his. And I end up, he ends up trying to share the gospel with me because I've gone so long in my friendship that I never moved it to the ministry of reconciliation. And I wonder if that struggle is common. It's a fear. It's not a, it's, it's a, it bothers me to think that way. I don't want the first time one of my friends hears about Jesus to come from somebody else's mouth. I want it to come from me. You might say it's a holy competition. I'm fine with that. I want to be the first one to introduce my friends to Jesus. I want to be the first one to tell them to step into Christ. That's what it means to love them. That's what it means to live missionally. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that you and I step into these conversations and we tell them everything we know about Jesus right off the bat or in every conversation, but it does mean we tell them, we drop little hints, we drop little thoughts of Jesus. We tell them, we thread, we weave some threads into our conversations that highlight Jesus. 
We show them the changes he's making in our lives. And, and we move in a missional direction as we befriend them and as we share that message with them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I come before you and I pray that if your spirit is stirring up things within us now, I ask God that you would bring grace and that you would bring direction, that your love in this moment would dislodge ourselves from the center of our existence, that your love would begin to dominate and direct and drive us through life in this world. And I pray that as we find ourselves in Christ, that we would execute the ministry of reconciliation, that we would call people into Christ. God, would you do that in only the ways that you can? We ask and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.